Hi there, this episode is an audio rip of a YouTube video. If there are any references to the screen or to the video itself, then be sure to go over to YouTube and actually check out the video, which will be the same title as this podcast. Thanks. Hi, and welcome back to the 18th edition series. Now, chapter 43 is protection against overcurrent. We're pushing through part four now. We've done protection against electric shock. We've done protection against thermal effects. We're now gonna talk about overcurrent. Now, an overcurrent is a current that exceeds the rating of uh, a cable, current carrying capacity, or a switch, or an accessory, or a protective device. And we need to always identify the potential causes that we or the harm that we can cause with uh, excessive amounts of current. In principle, what we need to identify is the two common causes of an overcurrent. So we have a fault current and an overload current. Now these two types of overcurrent can't technically coexist. A overload current is a overcurrent in a circuit that's electrically sound. So this would be a motor that's been overpowered, over-demanded, or it would be a socket outlet circuit with too much stuff plugged in. There's no fault present, but the natural um, power demand has resulted in an excessive quantity of electrons putting through. The amperage is too high. Um, any conductor, any conductor can carry quite a large amount of current, and the limiting factor with a conductor size isn't actually the size of the conductor technically, and it, well, there, there is a point where they will rupture, but it isn't really the size of the cable. It's the insulation around it. When we actually look in the uh, appendix four of the cable's current carrying capacities, the actual sizes of the cables are all uniform, 2.5, 4mm, 6mm, but the varying levels of current carrying capacity is a result of the effect of the heat accumulated within the conductor and the insulation properties. We must ensure the insulation protecting this cable does not become defective, does not become diminished, and that can occur if we result in too high amount of current flowing through. The insulation will heat up to a level, and for example, thermoplastic, 70 degree, when it reaches beyond that limited temperature, it starts to um, soften, it can even like just fall off, or it, it, as it cools down, it'll become really, really brittle. You've probably seen this before when you've done inspections, where you get cables that are really hard and brittle. The insulation's overheated, and it's basically defective now. The other kind of current that we need to look out for is fault current. Now, whilst fault currents occur for uh, well, they should hopefully occur for fairly, sh you know, fairly short durations. We've covered that in chapter 41. We try to achieve a high fault current for short duration. We do this by achieving low impedances. Ohm's law, low resistance, high current. We need to also observe the potential increase in temperature that the insulation can reach. So we'll look at that at the end of this at the end of this video with the very last bit. Uh, there's also in this case electromechanical stresses. So we need to make sure the actual um, conductors can tolerate these large rushes of current. Um, we'll also return to that um, area in chapter 54, where we look at sizing of protective conductors using the adiabatic equation, ensuring that the conductor, whilst normally idle and just sitting there doing nothing, can tolerate that huge increase in current that the conductor's gonna be subjected to, because quite often, you know, if you have a poor connection or a poor, very small conductor, and you shoot huge amounts of current through it, it can actually just break out. Um, it's a very, it's a very uh, common thing that we look for. This is one of the reasons why we, why 
uh, patch testing, for example, if you if you actually look into patch testing properly, we're supposed to with um, we do we do hard tests and soft tests. We're supposed to do the hard test first, which for a protective conductor in a cord set of you know 0.751 mil flex, we're supposed to push 25 amps through that thing to see if there are any frayed cables, if that huge amount of current for that poor connection will will break. That's one of the intention purposes of doing hard testing. Modern times we don't do that because manufacturers have crippled the industry, uh, plus you know training ethics. But what we're going to talk about now is overcurrent and you know what what we have to identify can be the risks of overcurrent, and so we achieve protection for overcurrents. Pushing through, then we've got four three one. Protection according to the nature of the circuits and the distribution system. So except in two cases given in 431.1.2, which is below, it says this will apply to the detection of overcurrent provided for all line conductors and will cause disconnection of the conductor in which the overcurrent is detected, but not necessarily the disconnection of the other line conductors except but the disconnection of one line conductor could cause damage or danger. So, for example, if you would have a three-phase motor, you would not want a single pole disconnect you'd want to have multiple disconnect because if you lost one phase then obviously there'll be a complication with the equipment so you'd have multiple disconnection however if you were to have you know single phase isolators equipment on single phase circuits you can have one line respectively isolate and you don't necessarily have to have the others isolate if it can cause danger then such as a three-phase motor you'll have appropriate precautions taken it then says in a TL or a TT system for circuit supply between live conductors in which the neutral conductor is not distributed, overcurrent protection need not be provided for one of the line conductors provided the following conditions. So what this is saying again, so you haven't got distributed neutral, such as a three-phase balanced load. So in that case, yeah, you can get away with that. You then have protection of the neutral conductor, 431.2. So for a TN or a TT system, the neutral conductor shall be protected against short circuit current. Now we think about this, we size our neutral conductors most often to the same size as the live conductor. There are some circumstances where we may have no neutral. There may be some circumstances where we have a smaller neutral, or you know, maybe with harmonics a larger. So we do need to make sure that if there is a size change, the overcurrent protection is sufficient for the neutral conductor. But it will say um, somewhere here, um, Yeah, so it says where the cross-sectional area of the neutral is at least equivalent to that of the line conductors and the current in the neutral is expected to not exceed the value, it's not safe to provide overcurrent detection, so it's protected by the sizing. If the neutral is less than that of the line, it is necessary to provide overcurrent detection for the neutral, appropriate cross-sectional area of the conductor. It shall cause a disconnection of the line conductors, but not necessarily the neutral. So you'll monitor the overcurrent protection in the neutral, but you wouldn't have an isolating device in the neutral. Um, and if you were, it would be a double pole. You would not single pole isolate neutral. That's something we're going to repeat a lot through the regulations. We do not isolate neutral as a single pole device. That makes sense if you think about polarity, for example. Okay. So one of the concerns we have is the potential for loss of a single phase on a three phase motor. So we do need to make sure that if there is a three phase supply that relies on three phases, that we don't isolate a single pole device. Um, three phase MCBs is your common solution. Um, I've seen it before where often uh, an electrician's taken three single pole MCBs and they've put a pin through the uh, through the actual switches. The manufacturer allows that. They have this little uh, 
pin mechanism that you can put through to link the MCBs together. Uh, but you must make sure that if it needs to be multipole, that it is a multipole device. We then push on to talk about harmonics. Now it says 431.2.3. Overcurrent detection shall be provided for the neutral conductors in a polyphase circuit where the harmonic content of the line currents is such that the current in the neutral conductor may exceed the current carrying capacity of that conductor. The overcurrent detection shall cause disconnection of the line conductors, but not necessarily the neutral. Where the neutral is disconnected, the requirements of 431.3 are applicable. Um, I don't know, you know, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with harmonics, but I am aware that quite often this kind of area gets kind of skipped and they kind of push past it. Um, in, in, in simple terms, what we have is we have the single cycle of the AC waveform. So, you know, 60 hertz, 50 hertz, whatever. This is just one rotation of the AC waveform. And what a what harmonics are is where we obviously have the um, distortions in the, in the AC waveform. Now we have, obviously, we have the fundamental, the first harmonic. This is this, is, this, is this one here. Okay. And we have second, third, fourth, fifth. And our main problem with, with the um, potential of, um, of these currents is when we have the, the, the third harmonics or the triplet harmonics as they're known as. So what we do is we take the, we take the odd, the odd um, harmonics and in the case of a third harmonic, this is what's illustrated here. So for every single cycle, that's one cycle, we have the third harmonic is the three cycles there. So there are three cycles of that. Now, what creates harmonics is when we have nonlinear loads. This is going to be, you know, anything like, you know, power supplies, even fluorescent lighting, anything that is not truly, you know, um, truly resistive, where it works, you know, phase and current work nicely together. Anything that's nonlinear, washing machines, uh, all sorts of equipment, anything that has basically um, rectifiers as well. You know, most equipment will have some level of harmonic content. And when we have this staring quantity of harmonic content, we can have these, you know, this situation. So what's actually happening here? So we have this, here's an example of three phases, A, B, and C. And so what's actually happening is at any one time, if I draw a line here, see this vertical line here. Now, but see, the, these are all, at the same time, but they're 120 degrees apart. So this is one, this vertical line is one point in time. On this vertical line, the cumulative value of the voltage, so here, let's say this is negative 200, this is zero, and this is positive 200. The overall sum should be zero. And if the overall sum is zero, we then have the question of, well, is the overall sum of the harmonics zero? Well, that's, that's gonna be a no. Um, well, in, in, in this position, they will be zero because there is zero position. But in this position, so again here at this at this timeline, that plus that plus that are all zero, but the harmonic is peaking. So you actually have, um, let's say let's let's just let's just say that let's say that this is uh, two hundred. So also that's going to be half of that's going to be one hundred. So let's say that's seventy odd volts. That's that's going to be a potential of zero volts on the line. But you have seventy volts. On the harmonics which is going to result in current and that current ends up on neutral so we have a potential there for currents on the neutral and, and that is exactly what we use these systems for um we, we we understand neutral currents and the third harmonic can be a problem because we get a point in time where we have zero volts but positive current and we end up with current in excess on the neutral and more current on the neutral um there are there are 
many many other many other ways that we can look into this with star delta configuration and understand how how um delta handles harmonics stars handle harmonics but that's that's another video this is just you know this is just the regulations and all this is saying is if you have significant quantities of harmonic content you need to identify if there's a potential for the quant you know the, the uh, quantity of that content to result in higher harmonic currents on the neutral um quantity of uh I don't know, um, variable speed drives, power supply units, significant quantities of those. That's where we get this this um, issue. We we need to make sure that we, with harmonic current content, it's kind of localized. The issue is when the harmonic current content affects the the voltage. If we get variations in voltage, then we have a that's a common issue to everyone else in the network, and we can get real problems. So you know, power quality analysis will be good ways to salute, um, to to look into this. But the 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 issue here, the reason that this is here about overcurrent is we need to consider if the harmonic content, or you know, like the third harmonic, the triplet harmonic, or it could even be the fifth or the seventh harmonic, results in a value that puts a current in excess on the neutral, and we need to make sure that the neutral has been sized to protect against overcurrent for that, if need be. All right, four, three, two nature of protected devices um it's you know f there's three regulations there protecting against both overload and fault or just overload or just fault but what they're basically saying is the device needs to protect against both overload and fault it'll be capable of breaking and for the circuit breaker making any overcurrent up to including the maximum prospective fault current over overload only again must be you know able to tolerate the breaking capacity um when we select protective devices, we we see this um, this this square there, the six thousand there. That's obviously the braking capacity of that protective device. We must identify that devices have capacities; they have they have limits. And we must make sure that when we identify a point of position or a point of installation, that we know what that fault current will be, and we select a device to suit that. So when you go closer to the origin, devices will be greater in value of of um, fault currents. So you'll have you know 33kA service fuses, maybe 20-25kA main distribution assemblies, and then right towards the end of your final circuitry, something like 10 or 6kA MCBs. That's just a common arrangement, but it could be larger. It depends on the amount of energy. And this is one of the reasons why we measure the prospective fault current wherever we actually install a protective device. It must be able to tolerate the fault condition that is there, an overcurrent that requires you know protection. It's in this section um, and uh, yeah that's uh, a common thing it's the prospective fault current they must be able to tolerate the prospective fault current that's going to be there at their point of selection that'll do for that one 433 though this is where we start talking a little bit a bit more about Cable selection as a practice. One, this is going to be. This is going to introduce one of the common rules we have to always remember when we do cable selection later on in part five. So, coordination between conductor and overload protective device four three three dot one. Every circuit shall be designed so that a small overload of long duration is unlikely to occur. The reason for that is because what we need to understand right now is if I have a I don't know, if I have a 32 amp circuit breaker, 60898, it doesn't trip at 32 amp, it doesn't trip at 33 amp, it doesn't trip at 34 amp. The value that it actually trips at is a lot larger. And we can actually look at off the, sh you know, 
in the book we have some information. Remember, manufacturer's information though should be sought. This obviously may may not match the devices that you have. But if I look in the regs book at the curve for the 60898, let's go with a type B. Although to be honest, this value of current is the same for Bs, Cs and Ts. Um, so I'm gonna go to the curve. I'm on page 370. So this is where everything gets a little bit interesting looking. Okay, so it's the type B circuit breaker. Now we said 32. All I've got to do really is identify the 32 amp um, curve on that chart. So what I'll do is I will I could edit the video and kind of put it in, but I'm sure you'll find it. Right? So you see there's a, a 32 amp one of these. Okay. I see that there. Yeah, 32 amp. What I then need to notice is down the left, it's time in seconds, and it goes up in different intervals of 0 0.01, 0 0.1, 1, then 10. So every horizontal line represents a different value. Then along the top there, so along the bottom here, I have the amount of current. So this represents how much current is required to achieve disconnection of that device in the time frame. So if I look at the 32 amp, technically where it leaves the page at the top is where it starts to trip because that point at the top is a vertical line. Yeah, it reaches a vertical position. So the 32 amp actually leaves the top of the page in between two vertical spaces. If I then hold, if I put my finger on that and I go all the way down, I then find myself looking at 10, 20, 30, 40, 5, 46 ampish. Okay, so that tells me that if I have 20, 10 amp, 20 amp, 30 amp, 40 amp, that device hasn't disconnected. 46 ampish is where I'm looking at. That's when the line becomes a vertical and leaves the page. So technically, a 32 amp MCB will require somewhere around 45 to 46 amp to disconnect in 10,000 seconds. That's the top of that. Now obviously, 40 amp might disconnect. Depends on obviously the characteristics of the thermo, you know, the um, the 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 thermo contact in the device. Because this is where the the two methods that an MCB works. You have electromagnetic field with the plunge in the pot, actually, you know, high current putting it in. A bit like how a solenoid works, resulting in disconnection. We're not using that method here. What we're doing here is we're, we're relying on the bimetallic strip. So we're allowing that to you know reach a higher limiting temperature over time and there'll be a point where it disconnects. And when you have overloads on MCBs, you'll notice that you'll go to reset the MCBs and they just, you know, if they've just tripped, for example, you've overloaded them, they don't reset yet because you've got to wait for the biometallic strip to kind of come back down. When we have these currents, we need to identify that a, an overload of low current, as it says here, we need to try to admit, avoid these happening. We need to try to make sure that if they are going to happen, We've got a bit of a gap between the current and the protected device. 
uh, just to just to tolerate that because if we don't we can end up with a little bit of excessive overheating on our conductor okay so it started there every I'm back on 433.1 every circuit shall be designed so that a small overload of long duration is unlikely to occur we need to try to avoid this so the operating characteristics of a device protecting a conductor against overload shall satisfy the following the rate of current or current setting of the protected device known as the IN is not less than that design of is not less than the design current IB of the circuit okay so IN must be no less than IB the rate of current of the setting of the protected device IN shall not exceed the lowest of the current carrying capacities of IZ of any of the conductors of the circuit and the current I2 causing effective operation of the protective device, that's what we just looked at. So the amount of current for a 32 amp MCB BSCN60898 to effectively disconnect it regardless of time was about 46 amp. The amount of current that results in that shall be no, no uh, shall not exceed 1.45 times the lowest of the current carrying capacities IZ of any of the conductors. So we need to make sure we consider that depending on the character, you know, the device type. So, the IN must be less than or equal to the cable's current current capacity IZ. That's just because if I select a, let's say that this is a, uh, let's say this is a, a 40 amp, and I put it on a cable that can only carry 33 amp with the way it's installed. By the time this device is operating under overload, this cable's rating has been exceeded already. So we must make sure that the protected device's um, rating is less than the cable's limiting uh, current rating. We say less than or equal to, you know, but it must must be, you know, must be equal to or lower than that. Similarly with the design current, the IB. Now the IB, which we can calculate from power over voltage, the IB is the the, the power demand of the equipment. If I if I was to buy a three kilowatt heater, um, it's not going to one day decide to pull less or pull more. It's it's rating power is three kilowatts. So that's you know thirteen point oh four amp. I must make sure that the device is more than that or the same because if it's less than that, it's going to be overloaded and over time you know it can disconnect and that's just going to be a nuisance stripping issue. Um, so I must make sure it's bigger. Now how much bigger? doesn't really matter technically if it doesn't need to provide overload protection um, but obviously this must be less than the cable so what we do is we say the IB must be less than or equal to the IN and the IN must be less than or equal to the IZ and this is what we call coordination this is going to potentially repeat itself later on in part 5 and you may see it written this way so IB must be less than or equal to IZN less than or equal to IZ now this says this says, this has often appeared in um in 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 like assessments etc. What they'll do is they'll say, you know, they'll have values such as twenty amp, eighteen amp, and fifteen amp, and then they'll put those values beside different currents. And the rule is, the rule is, uh, if they're laid out in this way, the value should go up and up. So a you know. 15, 18, 20, or 18, 20, 22, whatever, but they should be going up in value, they should not come down. Okay, this is how they normally illustrate coordination. All right, 
We're going to repeat this, or we're going to remind ourselves of coordination when we do cable selection in 523 and 525 sections because the rules of cable selection rely on verification of this coordination. If we, when we size the cable, um, we must verify that we work to this, otherwise, we're not achieving overcurrent protection. What does it then say after that? It then says, where the protected device, this is 433.1.201, where the protected device is a general purpose type GG fuse to BS882, 883, a circuit breaker to 60898, a circuit breaker to 60947-2, or a residual current device with RCBO, blah, 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 to 61009, then one and two will result with coordination three. So they're saying that with the way those devices work, with the way that those specific devices work, and their you know their speed and their accuracy, that if we achieve this coordination here, then the the I two isn't much much of a problem because of their rapid disconnection. Okay. However, one type of protected device has been pulled out of that, and that is four three three dot one dot two or two. This says if the protected device is a semi enclosed fuse to BS three hundred three six, compliance with condition three. Yeah, will be met if the rated current IN does not exceed 0.725 times the current carrying capacity IZ of the lowest rated conductor in the circuit protected. This is where we're starting to talk about the need to consider how the protected devices behave and the impact that their behavior can have on our cables selected. Now 3036s, unlike the other devices, 3036s, whilst they're still okay to use, they're still okay to design with, they are they're not very very favourable. They work purely on heating up and, and creating a melting point within the circuit. So their time can take quite a while. Now when we have a low overload, um, this long duration could become quite a long duration. For example, if I go back to these um, if I go to the 3036 curve in Appendix 3, I'll actually see that we'll go with a 30 amp, for example. Now we said that the 32 amp needed 45 or 46 amp to disconnect for I2. Now the 30 amp one, which is on page 365, that actually leaves the page at, so I've got the 30, in case you're not aware, aware of where I'm at, I'm on this curve, but it's for semi-closed fuses to BS306, 3036, and that's actually on two pages because the curves are close together. So this is actually figure 3A2A on page 365. Now, when I look at that and I look at the 30 amp, instead of it being like a, a 60898 where it's, you know, you know 45, 46, this one actually goes at the top of the page and it leaves the page at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 55 amp. Yeah, 10, 20, 30, 40, 55 amp. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a, you know it requires a lot more for it to disconnect in that time frame. And so we're talking about the conductor that's protecting that will be under a lot more stress by the time it has disconnected. So what we say when we size cables with these 3036s is we need to apply a factor. And we do that in the cable selection process. Now, if this circuit does require overload protection, okay, not overcurrent protection, I'm talking now about overload. So motors doing too much work, sockets with too much plugged in. We're not talking about full current. 
we're talking about overload protection. If it does need overload protection, and we are potentially going to achieve a low overload of long duration, <coughs> what this regulation tells us to do is, right, that protected device just, you know, it takes forever. Don't like it. So what we do is we take our conductor, IN, for overload protection, the, the, the rating. And to size our conductor, we divide IN by 0.725. And when we divide a value by a number less than one, so if I take a number and I divide it by 0.725, what I'm gonna do is increase that number. And this is this is one of the very first uh, factors uh, that we're gonna use. We're gonna repeat um, factors in 52, um, 523 and 525, but we're gonna see them mentioned again. And this one is a factor we know as CF fuse. It's probably one of the easiest ways to think of that. Okay, and it's always 0.725, and it only applies if the protected device is a BS3036 and if the circuit requires overload protection. All right, so you need to know the characteristic of your load. This is all about overcurrent protection. We are protecting the conductor from the characteristic and behavior of the protected device by derating the cable, saying that protected device, all right, go with it, but that cable's got to be bigger because it's going to take longer to disconnect under an overload condition. Similarly, uh, with 433.1.203, the cables that we select in the book are rated I say rated. They're, they're values of current carrying capacity. Okay, um, you know this is where, where we get all this kind of stuff. All, all, all these tables in Appendix um, Four, all those ones. Right? If you ever look at any one of those tables, uh, let's say for example, let's just jump to one, just so that you, you're following where I'm looking. I'm on page four hundred three, Table Four D Two A. Um. I'm looking at that, and that just tells me, okay, a 70-degree thermoplastic insulated sheath thermoplastic sheath cable, non-armoured, okay. But it tells me to the right, the ambient temperature, these conductors' settings are given an ambient temperature of 30 degrees, which, you know, that's a starting point. We have to have a point to start with, and then what we do is we then adjust from our, our, our points. We can call this like unity or one. We say that cable can carry that much amperage, then if you're going to then change the environment by going to 35 degrees or 40 degrees or 45 degrees, we'll then factorize the adjustment back from that initial starting point. That's what we have to do. Now, what they've done here is they've said, oh, okay, but if you're going to install your cable outside, yeah, a buried duct, it then says we're going to have to consider the ambient temperature to be 20 degrees as a starting point. So what we're going to do is we're taking our temperature down a bit to 20 degrees. So whenever we have a cable that's buried in the duct, we actually also have to apply a factor just to bring that temperature range down of the value given in uh, Appendix 4. Uh, and that's another factor that we call a CC. And that one is 0.9. We'll repeat these later on, and there's a whole section that introduces them in part four, um, which I won't go yet into yet. That's gonna go in depth in again 523 and 525 when we get to selection of wiring systems. Then we have, so that, you know, that just previews a little bit about how we consider overcurrent protection and we have to consider the characteristics of the conductor's ability to carry, you know, the temperatures that are, are created in overload or, you know, even whilst in operation with the case of buried cables. 
Then we go to ring finals. Now, obviously, the ring final circuit is a is a is a fascinating thing, and we'll see a lot of discussions these days in modern days. You know, with electricians saying, "Are we still using these? Should we not be thinking about you know getting rid?" And I'm not going to go into the whole background of that, the argument for that, because again, we're sticking to the regulations here. But you know, they were made for a purpose. They're, they're introduced for a reason. Um, now, obviously, we don't have that reason, and our quantity are, and our demand has significantly expanded beyond what was there when these were initially introduced. Um, and there is a safety concern with regards to the potential of a disconnected ring final not being detected if Joe Bloggs was to go down to the local shed and buy a socket and put one on. Ring final circuits do create more... Uh, they definitely create more potentials of uh, risk and fire risk, uh, especially in an environment not controlled by a maintenance program under electricity work regulations. So in the domestic world, they are definitely more vulnerable. Um, but again, that's another video. What does the regulation say, though? It says, accessories to BS1363 may be supplied through a ring final circuit. Okay, it's a ring final, not a ring main, by the way. With or without unfused spurs, protected by a 30 or 32 protected device, complying with BS88, 3036, 60899, um, all the others. It would be wired with copper conductors having a line of neutral conductor with a minimum size of 2.5mm, except for a mineral insulated cable where we can use 1.5. reason we can use 1.5 for mineral is because they are allowed to run at higher temperatures due to the magnesium oxide within the cable. Uh, MI cables allow the core conductor to run higher because the insulation around them is a basically a heat sponge um, it allows them to run to a higher temperature such circuits need to meet the requirements of 433.1.1 above coordination if the current carrying capacity i said of any cable at any point of the circuit so you know this one or this one or this one yeah is not less than 20 amp and if under the intended conditions of use the load current at any one part is unlikely to exceed for long periods the current carrying capacity of the cable. So, when we store the ring final, let's say this is a typical ring final, so you have a 32 amp protected device with a 2.5 cable going around, that's fine if it's installed in certain reference methods. Reference method C, for example, this cable will be able to carry 27 amp. Some other reference methods, they may only be able to carry 21 amp, or uh, in some cases, 13 amp, which would be unacceptable. So we need to always consider the method of installation. We're going to talk about reference methods and methods of installation again in part five, but we do need to make sure that we consider sizing these cables properly. Now it says there 2.5 or 1.5, but you know the cable must be installed in a way that allows the IZ to be 20 amp. That's the rule. So if I install this cable in a way by grouping it, by putting it through thermal insulation or whatever, that brings the IZ below 20, it's not acceptable. All right. It also then says, you know, making sure that any particular part of the ring isn't going to exceed the temperatures for a long time or the values. This is again is one of the reasons why kitchens will be on their own ring final because normally with a ring final that feeds a kitchen, um, if there are other parts of the house, let's say for example, this ring was just downstairs and this socket and this spur kitchen and this and this and this were uh, living room and dining room this area is under much larger periods of demand and so this area of the ring final is under much larger demand and whilst we consider it as a parallel it it doesn't quite work that way because obviously from here to here 
there is more resistance in that route. So more resistance equals less current taking that route. Some will, but not as much. At the very midpoint, then it's a parallel. But it's not a parallel when you have a socket nearer the point. Okay, it's not a parallel that way. So those are the requirements for ring finals. It's very important to remember to remember that um, the IZ mustn't go over 20 amp for any point. I'm going to remind you guys of that again when we look at cable selection in part five. Uh, also, you know, just just I haven't got got the exam marker up, but this does come back in exams a lot. And um, 2.5 and ring final. I mean, you, you shouldn't need to look for that. So, um, but it does come up. We then have 433.2, which is positioning of overload protected devices. So, unless 433.2.2 or 433.3 apply, which basically says you have protection against overload by having... Okay, yeah, the limit, we'll come to those. All right. It says, right, a device protection against overload shall be installed at the point where a reduction occurs in the value of current carrying capacity of the conductors on the installation. Well, that makes sense. So if I have a cable here that can carry, I don't know, 50 amp, and then I have a cable here that can carry 10 amp, this will need 50 amp protection. This 10 amp won't be protected by 50 amp protection. It has to have reduced protection. That makes a lot of sense. So that's why we select the protected devices wherever we change size. There are a couple of circumstances where where obviously that might be different. Um, for example, if here you had a 40 amp MCB, and here you had, no, let's, let's say 32 amp MCB, and here you had a, a six mil cable. It might be that this next bit goes to a shower isolator, but then this bit going to the shower runs through thermal insulation or through a grouped conductor area or through a higher ambient temperature. And due to the need to accommodate the reference method you take the cable up a bit yeah that won't need protection because it's still protected over here similarly it might be that you have this as a 32 amp and you run 10 mil and you run 10 mil due to length because of volt drop or you run 10 mil due to grouping or through high ambient temperature but then when you get to the shower isolator you then go off in 6 mil as long as the cable throughout the run is protected here so the 6 mil here is protected by the 382 amp there that's fine, okay? But if we actually, you know, change the device because of natural uh, loading, then likely we'll have to install protection over current protected devices at every point of those changes. So, you know, you have to understand what the regulations are saying there. Emission. Um, 433.3.1. So this is overload current. Emission for devices protecting against overload current. We've got over here. There we go. <laughs> so a device protection against overload need not be provided if, for a conductor situated on the load side of the point where reduction occurs in the value of current going capacity, where the conductor is effectively protected against overload by a protected device installed on the supply side. I kind of said that just a minute ago. So, you know, the, the cable that is there on the load side, there's a device that provides sufficient overcurrent protection on the supply side. 
or for a conductor which because of the characteristics of the load or the supply is not likely to carry overload current. Now again we are talking in this section 433 about overload protection. This is a fault-free circuit that's carrying too much power. Now overload protection is not required in a circuit that is not liable to overload conditions. So something like a, a shower, a heater, a cooker, you know, they're rated at a wattage, you turn them on, they do their power and then they turn off. They don't draw more power. If they become faulty and draw more power, that's a fault current, not an overload current. An overload current is a fault-free circuit. So we're talking about motors, socket circuits, and things like that right now in 433. So if it, yeah, if it, if it doesn't need to overload, then it won't need overload protection. Okay, and we're going to again see that when we look at the formulas in Appendix 4 later on in the course. Or it then says... At the origin of the installation where the distributor will provide an overload protected device and agrees that it does afford protection to the part of the installation between the origin and the main distribution point of the installation where further overload protection is provided. This explains the scenario where we have meter tails, we have our supply, we have our intake. Now, this belongs to the distributor, this belongs to the distributor, this belongs to the distributor, this meter belongs to the distributor. On the load side of that though, this belongs to the consumer. And obviously, you know, with new installs or new rewires these days, the distributor will be expected to, after the meter, to install a double pole isolator and maybe seal their side of it so that you then obviously just worry about the load side of it. But it might just be a double pole isolator, it's not an overcome protected device. Again, still in those scenarios, the supplier is affording that this overcome protected device here will achieve the equivalent overcurrent protection required or overload protection required for this cabling. And then here, we'll install further overload and overcurrent protection for the final circuitry beyond or the sub-distribution circuitry beyond. All right. But again, we'll see in a minute with fault current protection, this does provide a limit of distance. We then have the other thing. Why else maybe we omit overload protection? Well, we have safety issues here, 433.3.3. Overload protection may be needed to be omitted or ignored for safety reasons. It could be the excited circuit of a rotating machine, the supply of a circuit for a lifting magnet, so overload protection. So, I mean, what would you have again? What would you have instead of overload protection? You'd have a monitoring or an alarm system instead. So there'll be some system in place, but it won't necessarily be a disconnecting system, especially if the disconnection can result in, through samples such as these, a risk. We shouldn't disconnect a circuit if it will create a risk as a, as a, as a consequence. So that's overload protection. When we move on to 434, we talk about fault current protection. Now let's remember, overload protection are quite often small overloads or gradual overloads of long duration with fault current protection, we have similar principle, we have a fault condition, but we're now probably talking about much higher levels of current because the circuits are designed to achieve that. So, determination of respective fault current, 434.1. The respective fault current will be determined at every relevant point of the installation. This will be done by calculation, measurement or inquiry. Yeah. Uh, you can inquire it, they'll give you a random number. You can calculate it. Um, we can often calculate that, such as the you know, example given here. Yeah, simple Ohm's law. Um, 
you can calculate a supply perspective fault current if you have the supply loop impedance of the fault current pathway. Um, on a new installation, you may have a ZE. So you have a ZE, you can technically calculate perspective earth fault current. Now your meter may do that. When you take your ohm value, it will give you amps. We shouldn't do that though, because what we know about testing inspection is if we were to measure ZE, we take earthing conductor and we disconnect it from all the parallels of the main protective body conductor and the circuit protective conductors. All of those parallels result in lower impedances for earth fault loop return paths. So when we take a measurement of ZE, let's say I get 0.06 as given in this example, the meter would tell me for a single phase circuit, oh, that's 3.8 kA. But once I then introduce the bonding and I introduce the um, parallels of the CPCs, all through structural metal parts and things, that's going to probably reduce that value of impedance further, which will increase that value of current uh, as well. So we should always, calculation is always, um, it's inaccurate. Uh, it, it's impossible for it to be accurate. It's always an inaccuracy. It's a design tool. Designers will use that for selecting devices and switch gear, but they should never do designs that are very close because the reality is if you are very close with your design by calculating it, when you're then the commissioning engineer on site measuring it, your values measured will conclude that your full currents are actually inadequate. Um, this goes down another avenue, which is an issue that I want to talk about with inspection and testing on another area where we need to look at what we should be testing for and what we should do with the data that we do collect instead of just filling in a schedule of test results. Similarly, if we have three phase, uh, we understand that, you know, in this illustration, we have a three lines, neutral and an earth, a TNCS system here. Um, and the value of a loop is 0.06. So the value of that resistance is 0.03 and that one is 0.03. So the combined value of that loop path is 0.06. Same for the single phase with the neutral and the single phase with the earth. So a 0.06 fault path circuit for a single phase circuit fault is 3.8 kA. For a three phase is larger, 6.6. .6. Now we have this multiplied by two rule of thumb thing, um, but you get the idea. It's the larger amount of fault current in a three-phase fault or a fault between two phases because of the high voltage that's present. Moving forward then, we need to acknowledge that that is a lot of energy and we need to, and we'll do in a minute, play a calculation with that. But what else have we got here? Positioning. A device providing protection against fault current shall be installed at the point where reduction occurs in the cross-sectional area. That's very much the same as overload protection. So yeah, um, device changing size will require further consideration of fault current because the conductors changing size will not have the same limits for fault current conditions. They will be restricted, probably electromechanically. It then says 434.2.1. If 434.2.2 or 434.3 apply, which are below, a device for protection against fault current may be installed other than specified in 434.2 under the following. So in the part of the conductor between the point of reduction of cross-sectional area and the change in the position of the protected device, there should be no branch circuits or circuit outlets from that point. So, you know, straight in the line. And it must not exceed three meters in length. And this is where we came to this um, here. Now, when this is more than three meters of length, fault current protection will require a switch fuse isolator. So if you have your supply, let's say you're in a 
let's say you're a landlord or something and you've got your intake downstairs and the actual consuming unit is you know 20 meters away 10 meters away five meters away meet the tails can't travel for that journey you'll need to have a switch fuse isolator and then you'll have those going into it and then maybe a a twin earth or a multi-core coming out of it that size for volt drop and obviously you know power demand but that will then require an isolating device for fault protection and that's given there so not exceeding three meters in length and installed in such a manner as to reduce the risk of a fault to a minimum and be installed in such a manner to reduce to a minimum the risk of fire or danger to persons okay and then if you look at the emission for protection it's very similar you know, an exciter circuit rates fire accumulator, it could cause danger, such as the measures given in 433.3.3 for overload protection, where we mentioned lifting magnets, etc. Certain measuring circuits may obviously restrict the need for fault current protection as well. Okay, and the origin of the installation where the distributor installs one or more devices providing protection against the fault current and agrees that such a device, such as that one, affords protection to the part of the installation between the origin and the main distribution point of the installation where further protection against fault current is provided such as in there so again this is why this does not need protection against fault current because this distributor allows that and we know we can't go over three meters in length for that one okay let's go to 434.5 Characteristics of fault current protective device. Every fault current protective device shall meet the requirements of this regulation. Except where the phone paragraph applies, the rated short circuit braking capacity of each device shall be not less than the maximum prospective fault current at the point at which the device is installed. So yeah, if I have a device and I, if I have the device to select, and the point of installation's prospective fault current is measured as Let's say it's measured as 4.5 kA. I won't select a 3 kA. I won't select a 1 kA. I'll have to select probably a 6 kA or above. It must be greater than the, protect, the prospective fault current at the position of installation. Remember, this, this is both an earth fault and a short circuit. We must always monitor and identify the prospective short circuit and the prospective earth fault current. And we must find the highest and we must select a device to protect against the highest of the two. In three-phase systems, it's going to be between two lines, isn't it? A low brake capacity is permitted if another protected device or device having the necessary rated short circuit braking capacity is installed on the supply side. So what that's saying is, oh, I could have a, protect, a protective fault current that's lower as long as in the fault path journey there is a device that can tolerate that amount of energy before me that will do its job to protect me from that level of energy we then have 434.5.2 a fault occurring at any point in a circuit shall be interrupted within a time such that the fault current does not cause the permitted limiting temperature of any conductor or cable to be exceeded for a fault of very short duration, less than 0.1 second, the current limiting device's k squared s squared would be greater than the value of let through energy i squared t. Quoted for class of protective devices in these standards. All right. The time in which a given fault current will uh, raise the live conductors for the highest possible temperature in normal duty to the limiting temperature can as approximation be calculated from that formula. And that is there. 
t is equal to k squared s squared over i squared. So taking a minute to think about what this is trying to say. I've got a circuit. Now we talked about in chapter 41, circuits requiring mass and disconnection times. We said, okay, if I'm on a TN system and I have a final circuit that is less than or equal to 32 amp for fixed equipment or socket outlet less than 63 amp or up to 63 amp, then I required a 0.4 second disconnection. If my circuit was a final circuit over 32 or a, or a socket outlet circuit of over 63, I would require a five second disconnection. Similar with if it's a distribution circuit, a five second disconnection. Uh, TT systems have different times of 0.2 and one second respectively. So I need to know the maximum disconnection times of these devices. What I now need to know is, right, if I install a circuit and I ensure that it will achieve disconnection in that required time, so I'm going to install a circuit that needs to disconnect within 0.4. I need to make sure the impedance is low enough and the current in the full condition is high enough to turn it off within that time frame. So I want to put large amounts of current through that circuit by design. But that amount of current isn't going to be appreciated by the live conductors carrying that current in that full condition. Um, protective conductors too, but we'll look at the protective conductors opinion on this in chapter 54 later on. But for now we're talking about the live conductors. Okay. So and it says there uh, we've got there S is the size of the what's it say? The T is the time which the given full current will raise in the live conductors. The S is the cross sectional area of the conductors. There. T is the duration in seconds. That's what we're calculating. I is the effective fault current in amperes Express race is the RMS value. Do you account being taken of the current limiting effect of the circuit's impedance? So it's the effective fault current to achieve the disconnection. Okay. K is a factor that considers resistivity, temperature coefficients, and heat capacity of the conductor with regards to the method in which it was installed. And that's found from the page opposite. So um Let's take a let's take a, a, a random sample. Um, let's say that we have a circuit. Uh, this is why I need to do this as a live stream, so that you guys can throw questions at me, so that me kind of makes like up on the spot. Well, let's go with a circuit that is on a B thirty two amp because we've used that one a couple of times already. Let's go with the B thirty two amp circuit. Six zero eight nine eight RCB RCB six one double nine RCB or six zero eight nine eight MCB. It's irrespective. We're talking about short circuits, maybe. So we go with the B thirty two. B thirty two through TN system. So a TN system B thirty two. This is a final circuit. Okay. So let's call this a let's call it a shower or something. So it's a final circuit B thirty two TN. I now think about chapter forty one. Automatic selection of supply. It told it told me in that video. It tells me if I go back to it. I mean, we'll go back to it. All right. That the mass disconnection time required is 0.4 seconds. So if we go there, protection for safety, chapter 41, protection against electric shock, ADS, the common protective measure. Uh, yeah, um, page 58 and 59. It tells me um, right at the bottom. Maximum disconnection time stated in table 41.1 should be applied for final circuits with a rated current not exceeding 32 amps supplying only fixed connected equipment. A shower's fixed connected equipment, 32 amp. 
So the table will apply TN system 230 volts 0.4. I now know that I will have 0.4 disconnection. Right, so I'm going to take 0.4 as my disconnection time in my mind. What I now need to do is say, right, well, how much current will be required to achieve this disconnection? I can go to Appendix 3. And I can go to page 370, the uh, time curve for the RCBO in the 6098. And it, it, I can look at the curve, or it, it just tells me in the box. To achieve disconnection of 0.1 to 5 seconds, so our 0.4 seconds is in that window, we need 160 amp. So right now, I'm going to play with 160 amp being I. Now, in the real world, this may be a lot more because of impedances. We're going to say 160 amp. Let me write this down before I forget this. We're going to say 160 amp because we're going with the worst case. Now, 160 amp is worst case because that is assuming maximum full loop impedance. All right, but similarly. In this case, it could be not worst case because we could have a lot lower impedance. I mean, when was the last time you measured a, a shower circuit and the maximum airflow impedance was exactly the maximum? Quite often or not, it's less. And if it's less, if it, the impedance is less, then the current in the fault is more. This is a good reason why we need to start considering measuring perspective fault currents at the end of our circuits to verify this kind of thing. But you know, that's another video as well. So, right. Come back to where we're at. We know that a B32 requires 160 amp to disconnect in 0.4 seconds, but it actually will disconnect in 0.1 to 5 seconds because that's the characteristics of that protected device type. Okay, so I is 160. What cable size is on that? Um, for 32 amp uh, shower, let's go with a 4 mil. Again, I'm making this up as I go. We'll go with a 4 mil. So S is going to be 4. K. Now let's just say this is a typical domestic. So K is a factor found from the next page. And I haven't gone back there yet. Let me go back there. So back at table 43.1, page 93. This is values of K for common materials for calculation of the effect of the fault current for disconnection times up to five seconds. Okay. So we're going to go with, now I don't know how aware you are of cable types, but your generic twin and earth cable off the shelf at the wholesalers is going to be 70 degree thermoplastic insulation. Cheap stuff. All right. So we're going to go thermoplastic 70 degree. And our cable's cross-sectional area is less than 300 mil because it's a 4 mil. So we're going to go into that column, 70 degree thermoplastic, 300 mil. We're going to go down, initial temperature of 70 degree, final temperature of 160 degree. So that's the limiting temperature for the type of insulation. For a copper conductor, the factor is 115. That's the factor. So this formula will translate to T is equal to k squared which is 115 squared times s squared which is 4 mil squared over the i squared which was 160 squared okay right just so you know i'm going to be providing some resources that goes into these in more detail but i'm just kind of doing this on the spot 
So my T is the time I'm calculating. This is going to be how long a 4 mil cable installed with the method of installation, you know, and the type of setting of cable installation type, divided by the amount of current that will be there for the duration of the form. So I'm going to get the calculator. On my phone. Boom, 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 boom. All right, so T is K squared, which is 115 squared times 4 squared over 160 squared equals. I get. 8.26 okay I get 8.26 now if you get something else do comment and let me know but I believe that's done correctly what's this telling me what am I gonna what am I get doing with this information this tells me that a formal conductor subjected to 160 amps of fault current with the method of installation and installation type selected of 70 degree thermoplastic will take 8. Two six seconds to reach its limiting temperature. So the fault is present for that time or longer. The conductor's limiting temperature is 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 reached and it's now damaged. So the overcurrent is damaging the cable. So why won't it reach that period of time? Well, because that amount of current, the 160 amp, will disconnect that device in 0.1 to 5 seconds. So I know that my amount of current that is going to require, you know, result, the amount of current that will result in this damage would have disconnected the circuit by the time this would have become a problem. And that's, 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 that's what we're looking for. We're trying to identify that the amount of current present in the fault condition scenario will result in disconnection first for the insulation has been damaged due to the amount of current there. Let's just compare that to another pr to protected device type. So let's go back to the 3036, same circuit, 4 mil shower, same required disconnection time of 0.4 seconds, but let's change the device type to a 3036 30 amp. Okay, so K will still be 115, S will still be 4 mil, the only thing that will change is I, it's a different device type. So what is the amount of current that is required to disconnect a 3036 fuse in 0.4 seconds? because that's the requirement of chapter 41. I go back to the curves in appendix 3. I look for the 3036 curve that has the 30 amp fuse on it. We looked at this earlier on, actually. Uh, page 365, we were there earlier. I can just look at the summary table. It tells me in the summary table to the top right that a 30 amp fuse will require 210 amp for 0.4 second disconnection. So we are gonna have more current required to achieve this quicker disconnection. We did know we did, we did know that though, because we did say just about 10 minutes ago that the 3036 fuse is a bit of a bastard, and it does require a lot more current sometimes to disconnect in the same time frame. So let's redo that math. So 115 squared times four squared over, did I write it down? Did I write the number down? Two. This is the thing, I've just forgotten it. 200 and something, wasn't it?
210. I actually knew that, but you can calculate it. Right, over 210 squared equals. Alright, so that I get 4.79. So again, you can see there that it's going to take 4.79 seconds in this circumstance. So all we've done is change the protected device from a 60898 to a 30 amp 30, uh, 3036, but it's now going to, it's nearly halved it. It's gone from 8.26 down to 4.79. So this damage, this cable will be damaged a lot quicker because the, the cable is under, a, the, the circuit is requiring a lot more current because it's requiring 210 amp instead of 160. So because it requires more amperage, the conductors require or need to disconnect and they'll, they'll, they'll require shorter time to be damaged. And before I finish the video here, I want to just kind of rethink this a minute. If I had a circuit such as a a motor circuit or a, a light circuit and the C type or the B type you know repeats tripping the MCBs and my, my default response is oh okay well we'll change that from a B to a C or a C to a D. We need to remember that the requirement for ADS that we covered in chapter 41 when we change a B to a C or a C to D we actually now need to achieve much more current disconnect there's there's multipliers you know so um, like twice as much. This would result in, in this case, the cables would also be subjected to a lot more current for the durations. So if you change B to a C or a C to a D, it, something like that does require recalculating things like this over current protection. You know, If I, for example, had, we, what did we have a minute ago? We had a B32, which resulted in 8.26 seconds. So the B32, which required 160 amp, required 8.26 seconds. Now the C32 would require 320 amp. And I can recalculate that with a 320 amp. One five squared times four squared over the 320 squared. And this is this is this is this is this is where you need to understand what can happen. So by going from a, a B to a C, I've brought the time from 8.26 seconds down, and it's now at 2.06 seconds. So 2.06 seconds. I'm not saying that's a problem because it will disconnect in 0.4 seconds. What you need to understand is that window or that that potential for that conductor to be overloaded or to be damaged during overload conditions from the overcurrents has become a lot narrower. And again, when you have a lot, or you have, may have a device that's a bit, you know, a bit fiddly or doesn't behave properly, you may see that you get excessive overloads on your conductors. And this is the thing, when we change the windows from C to Ds or B to Cs, we are actually, you know, requiring higher levels of impedance to achieve the same disconnection time. And because we're requiring um, Sorry, lower levels in peaks to achieve the higher levels of current to achieve the quicker disconnection times. We are also resulting in this protection against overcurrent re needing to be verified every time. We must be verify protection against overcurrent whenever we change the circuit's protected device characteristic or we change the size of the conductor.
All right. Um, we'll we'll finish there. Taking us over current. Um, I'm probably going to do some handouts that kind or some some more information on things that are maths and calculations through this course because I appreciate that some of the best ways to actually get this to sink in and what I normally do in the classroom is give you example after example after example after example um, to work in worked examples and quite often I mean I, I, I did a training course just two weeks ago and we covered this area and you know and one one of the guys was said well you know what if we actually measure a lower value of impedance I said well you know what does this mean it means higher levels of current and we just played with it and the more you play with it the more you understand it and the more you understand it the more you realize how useful this book is and how important it is and this is again this is something I want to mention a few times for this course is when people do inspection and testing they need to know all of the content of this book because when you do a ZS and you see a device protected device characteristics if you can't put two and two together and come up with oh hang on over current protection may be an issue due to the large amount of current that's required to disconnect this device in the same time frame if you haven't got all these dots to join together you're missing opportunities and you're potentially not doing the work properly so I will do some more videos or some more training material on the maths in this course because repetition is the best way retention of this information but i don't i don't want to give it as a a question 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 i kind of want to do some work examples uh for you to interact with interaction is better than practicing i think um but yeah i will um i will come up with some ideas on that and i may just do a dedicated video or some streams on that maybe even you know let me know if that's what you'd be interested in um because interaction with this is probably one of the better ways to make it sink in you know so you can throw scenarios at me and we can work on them um it's just better that way but uh yeah oh god an hour oh wow um yeah uh overcome protection chapter 43 fundamental principle we've got one more to do in protection for safety that's uh well it's also chapter 46 but that's gonna be skimmed uh the next one's chapter 44 voltage disturbances i'm gonna start preparing and getting stuff ready for that and we'll upload that one as soon as we can uh but yeah um speak to you soon cheers <laughs>